Shrink Wrap Radio number 854. Psychologist and podcaster Dr. Kirk Honda interviews Dr. Dave. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. Dr. Kirk Honda is founder and host of the very popular and successful podcast Psychology in Seattle. He's been podcasting almost as long as I have, and he recently let me know I'm one of his heroes and said he'd like to interview me. Now, here's the interview. Hey, Deserve listeners, I have a really special guest on the podcast today, Dr. Dave from the Shrink Wrap Radio podcast. And let me do a little intro here for those who don't know. So back in the mid-aughts, I discovered podcasts, and hardly anyone else knew about podcasts, but for some reason I had discovered them, and loved podcasting because it had experts, real experts, who were speaking directly to the audience. They didn't have to go on a show and have only a, a three-minute little soundbite. They could talk for hours about their expertise, and I learned a lot of things. I loved astronomy podcasts. I loved science podcasts, and I also, of course, listened to psychology podcasts. And at the time, the most popular psychology podcast, and it still is very popular today, is Dr. Dave from Shriek Rap Radio. And so I would listen to him. And there were two other psychologists, two other psychology podcasts. Those were the three people that inspired me to start my own podcast in 2008. And I thought, I'll never be able to reach the heights of Dr. Dave. Well, now that I've had a chance to check out, check out your podcast, I have to say that You've gone up <laughs> quite a bit. You've gone up many notches. You might be El Supremo. Um, I'm very impressed by everything you've been doing in podcasting. Well, that's quite an honor, Dr. Dave. I have always been looking up to you. I've been listening to your podcast for, I guess, almost 20 years now. And you've always had wow. an amazing uh, voice, uh, an amazing style, you're very nice, very entertaining as a podcaster, and it takes a lot to entertain and to inform and to make guests feel comfortable. And you've had, for those who don't know, Dr. Dave, his main format on the podcast is to interview figures in our field, and he right. has interviewed all the living greats over the last 20. I mean, there isn't a single figure in our field or ancillary to our field who has not been on his podcast. He's like the Tonight Show of psychology podcasts. <laughs> I like that. So it, it's quite an honor. We've known each other since the beginning because I reached out to you all the way back in 2008. 
Yeah, you reached out to me, and I thought, okay, psychology in Seattle. You know, it, it didn't grab me, you know? Yeah, it's a weird name. You know, psychology in Seattle, where is that going to go? Is that just for people in Seattle? Wow, was I ever wrong. Uh, I get, I get uh, so often so many proofs of my poor judgment <laughs> about people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have a funny relationship with the name of the podcast. I, I've always thought it wasn't a great name, but I didn't know what else to call it. And in the beginning, I wanted the podcast to sort of be a local thing. I didn't want it to be uh, an international thing. I wanted uh, it to focus on Seattle and people who live in the area. Yeah. And uh, pretty quickly, within a year or so, that seemed like a, a, a fool's errand because <laughs> the internet is what it is. And if right, you are right. going to have an audience, you can't just focus on the micro audience of your neighborhood. I want I have a whole bunch of questions because I'm genuinely curious about this. Okay. When and why did you even start the podcast to begin with? Because I'm guessing you were the very first. I think I was. I, I've, I've said that on my, I've kind of advertised that. I put it at first cautiously out into the world. <clears throat> Not the first podcast, but I think I was the first psychology podcast. I started in 2005, and I probably could have gotten out sooner because 2005 was really the the year that podcasting really started as a thing. There were other kinds of audio files being placed on, you know, online, but podcasting became a thing. But I heard about podcasting through, I read an article, I think about, I think it was about Adam Curry. And so in that article, I encountered the word podcast. Well, I've been a amateur radio operator, a ham radio operator as a kid, I was consumed by that ha hobby. And in some ways, you know, if you want to know who I am as a podcaster, that's one of the main roots. What did you like about it as a kid? Well, this is uh, before the internet. There was no internet. And there was no way to communicate with people. Even my good friends, you know, across town couldn't communicate with them except by calling them up on the telephone. And I'd read the Hardy Boys, and there's there's some some of the episodes in there where their dad is a ham, or or the, they become a ham operators. And I was about twelve, thirteen, fourteen, somewhere in there, and I really wanted to to uh, get into that. And this is in the '60s or '50s. This is in the '50s. Were you living in the in the Bay Area? Are are you in the Bay Area now? Yeah, yeah. Well, the larger Bay Area. Were you then as well? No, no, I grew up in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. I was puzzled by the term podcast because, okay, I think I had an iPod at that time, and I knew it didn't have a transmitter in it, and I knew about transmitters and all of that stuff, electronics from ham radio, and uh, so I, I kind of find, what the heck is this, you know? So I looked into it a bit, and, uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah, we should also mention that my podcast started about the time that I retired from being a professor. So I had um, about almost a 30-year uh, academic appointment at Sonoma State University, which at the time I arrived was Sonoma State College, but it came up in the world a bit. And um, it was a humanistically oriented program, which was what drew me to the place. And, and um, 
I wasn't even sure all that humanistic psychology meant, all of the reading and history behind it, but it had the right ring to it. I felt like, oh, this sounds like my people. This sounds like where I want to be. Well, it turned out that the, the, um, the, it was not monolithic in any, any way. All the personalities on the faculty had very different ideas and really came from different places, different influences, and so on. But what it did for me was it gave me an appreciation of the different perspectives that were possible in psychology. And because I'd gone to graduate school and uh, you know been exposed first in a master's program to experimental psychology, and then later in a doctoral program to Freudian psychology, psychoanalytic approach, which was very, very rare at that time, um, in academia, I didn't know where I was going. Again, I was led intuitively, and I had no no idea what this program was going to be till I got there. Uh, so I know what I'm saying is related to a question that you asked me, but I'm lost. Oh, oh I'm, I'm trying to tell you that I wanted to do something that was broad and diverse, that I had a strong conviction that psychology is way too rigid and, you know, we had behaviorism, we had the psychoanalytic perspective, we had a bit of humanistic. And I thought that there's, it's like the elephant, you know, and the, the blind people groping to figure out what the elephant is. And so I've never been good at seizing upon one thing and making, making it, that's the thing, except podcasting, and radio, mountain biking, some things like that. Well, that makes you a really good interviewer because your interviewees range from all over the map when it comes to theoretical orientation and profession, it, and it shows in your interview style that you can value and somewhat understand everyone that you talk to. Yeah, I wanted to surprise my listeners, and I really didn't have a plan when I began other than that it would be interview-based already done some interviews for magazines. And so I thought, yeah, it, it, that's all I knew was that it would be interview-based. I actually invited a buddy to, to, you know, to do it buddy style like you do. And uh, he, he was a little reluctant. And so I just plunged ahead and did it on my own. That's so interesting. That's so interesting to me how different it would have been if you had a buddy this whole time. That yeah. would have been a lot different, don't you think? I think so, because now I've gotten kind of a little bit rigid in terms of, uh, of I want to do it my way. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I think of myself as a very flexible person, but as I've gotten to know myself better after all these years, I realize, wait a second, no, I do have some ideas about how I think things should work and how I want to do this. I would imagine that, uh, you know, because for me, I had the same instinct. I didn't want to do it by myself. And I asked my buddy, a colleague of mine, Bob, in the beginning, uh, you listened to an episode. Uh, I did, of yeah. us, And he actually turned me down, same as you, uh, with your buddy. Uh, he would later tell me that he was afraid of going on the air. And so I think my friend was the same way. But because of my ham radio experience, I wasn't intimidated by the microphone. So that was an advantage that I came in with. 
Maybe for me, because I'm a musician, I wasn't as intimidated or something. I didn't stop there, though. I immediately went to another best friend of mine, Umberto, and another best friend of mine, Lita. They're non-clinicians, though. So for me, in the, you know, similar to you, just kind of random circumstance really set the tone for the podcast because the podcast became a mixture of, you know, very much psychological academia geared towards other academics and clinicians, and then a lot of pop psychology stuff, because that's what Umberto and Lito wanted to talk about, Um, and how different it would have been if Bob actually would have taken me up on it in the beginning, and how (laughs) interesting it would have been. And I kind of miss that. I, I, I would have liked to have heard that progression with your buddy, because I would guess that there'd be more conversations between the two of you, you know, more back and forth personalities. There was a little bit of that early on. The, uh, the friend who's in Denver, who had, uh, we had parallel academic careers. We met in our freshman year as undergraduates. He got his girlfriend pregnant. He had to drop out of school. And somehow through all of that, we both went on in psychology. We kept in touch all of our lives, really, off and on. And um, so some of about, the, in I don't know, there are probably about 10, if I looked back, in which uh, we had conversations. And, uh, and yeah, it was a lot different. And I felt like I had to rein him in, you know, like I wanted to keep it clean, no swearing, et cetera, which in the early days in particular, I think that seemed more important. Um, but yeah, there was a, a different and a very special dynamic. Now, after all this time, I do have somebody I'm collaborating with who um, is an Oxford grad, a very brainy young woman, an Oxford graduate, I think I mentioned that, in the in London area. She's been blogging for me for some years and, and on a volunteer basis, and, and then... Um, I started having her conduct some interviews. And the great thing about her is she's not a therapist, although she's had experience in therapy. And she's, like all of us, has had issues in her life. And, um, you know, so the the idea of of talking about therapy wasn't totally uh, repulsive to her or scary. And uh, and she's, I guess, had become fond of me and my style and of the podcast and so was looking for a way to be involved. So I've had her do some just wonderful interviews of late, which is great because we're not on at the same time. It's like it's, it's her show for the interview that she does. and uh, But she reads things that I don't read. And so the, her interviews take us into corners of the world that uh, I would not have even thought to go to. So it's really been a great supplement to open myself up that much (laughs) to that. Yeah. Uh, So many questions about that. My first question is, how did your audience react to that? Because as a listener to your podcast, it's a. It could be argued it's like a different podcast with her, equally as good, but very different in tone, you know, because um, it's not just about the guests or the content. It's about you as a person, as a, I don't know, like a father figure or this stable presence in your life. How did the audience react to that? I don't know. <clears throat> I just plunged ahead and did it. I don't get nearly as much feedback 
as I did in the early days. And, um, you know, the people have, there's so much content out there now. I, I'm amazed by the amount of engagement that you're able to have with, with your audience. And I, I think that's stellar. And, uh, and that puts you really way up at the top. Uh, I think it's I think it's kind of rare, and uh, I'm going to be interviewing you. By the way, we might as well tip our hand here. Uh, is that on next week <laughs> we're going to turn the tables here? Yeah, which I have to say is quite possibly uh, the pinnacle of my career is to be honored to be interviewed on your podcast. Uh, uh, not only because of you, but also the all the figures that you've had on your podcast uh, to have me on that list is, you know, one of the best things I could ever think of in my career. Well, one of, you know, one of the things that characterizes what I've been doing, I think, is I decided to go after big fish. I look at it like fishing. And at first, I was going to just interview quirky people that I knew, you know, quirky local people. Like there are a lot of them in the Bay Area <laughs> at my university. But quickly then I wanted to, I read an article in a magazine and it was by a professor at USC. And I thought, well, I wonder if I could find his email address somewhere and reach out to this guy. And he was, it was something about psychology of, of politics as an area that he had been doing research in. Not anything I was tremendously involved with. Or, or even interested in, but I thought, well, this guy would be an interesting extension. And as and having done that, then I realized, whoa, I don't have to be limited to by geography. And uh, so then I began to, you know, to uh, I guess my ego or something to, well, partly I could say from a little bit of a inferiority complex or something, I was testing myself okay, do I really have the chops to talk to this person who, for me, is way up on a, on a pedestal? This person who, if I met them at a conference, they probably wouldn't give me two words. And, uh, and I'm delighted to say that, yeah, I, and I still value that reinforcement. I still, I still, I'm still feel so wonderful to... Uh, to be able to flex my muscles, so to speak. That's interesting to hear that you had that inferiority uh, thought because right from the beginning, I always thought you were already the, the top and you just had all this clout around you right from the beginning. It's the way you carry yourself, I think. So it's nice to hear because I, of course, also will feel insecure throughout yeah, my who career. Who doesn't? <laughs> we all do. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you named it Shrink Rap Radio, what was the reason? Was it because you thought it would be two shrinks rapping or what, you know, together, talking together? What, or why did you name it that? Uh, well, definitely uh, I was picking up on the idea of popularly psychotherapists are known as shrinks. And so I wanted to go with that. And then rapping is like talking. And then radio, somehow it just had the right... First of all, nobody knew what a podcast was at that at that point. You know, I could tell, hey, I could tell people, I have a podcast. <laughs> Duh, what's that? 
you know? For years after that. I mean, it, it was probably up until 2015 that most people didn't know what podcasts were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, going back to, I, I, I mentioned Adam Curry, and I think he was the one who persuaded Steve Jobs that podcasts should be on their list of media types that they were handling. Thank God. I mean, where would we be had not that happened? So, uh, yeah, that's that was actually part of the clout thing that I thought of you in the beginning, because I think I was under the impression that you were a, a literal radio show that was broadcasting also as a podcast. I didn't. I don't think I knew in the beginning that you were just a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think it was a smart move, and uh, it was just, it was mostly an intuitive thing. I like the ring of it. And I still like the the ring of it, and people still comment on it, and so um, that felt like I, I was glad that I followed my intuition on that. Yeah, and you also just had a great radio voice, uh, and you always had good equipment right from the beginning. Maybe that's from your ham radio experience. I don't know. Uh, I had major obsession with microphones. You won't believe the number of microphones I've gone through, and uh, and uh, and then sometimes gone back to a microphone, and and I had um, <clears throat> I have a sister who thought that uh, thought that I should be a media psychologist, and she had been in Hollywood and worked for some Hollywood personalities, and so she said, "I'm gonna let's make it let's have you make a tape, and I'll see if I can." get somebody to, to listen to it. So this uh, Mr. Hollywood Biggie listened to my tape and said, no, you, you don't have the right voice. Your voice isn't right for, for, you know, for the radio. And so I took that in. I believed that. And I thought, okay, yeah, my voice is a little airy and it doesn't seem that it doesn't have a lot of punch to it. And I got feedback, though, later on from uh, this Jungian woman who later had her own podcast, met her at a podcast conference in the early days. And she said, "Um, your voice to me is like hot chocolate on a cold morning. And I just took that in. And, you know, this would be one of the things I'll say to your audience that I'm sure you say in many ways. When somebody gives you a gift like that, don't fend it off. Say thank you and take it in. And fortunately, I, I did take it in, and, and I don't worry about the quality of my voice anymore, microphones not, notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think you have a perfect voice for this sort of podcast. It has a deep resonance. I think that often is something that people are looking for in a radio voice. Not always, but you know, it has a soothing quality. But also... You have a, I don't know how to describe it, but like a curiosity in the way that you talk, even if you're just speaking about something you're not curious about. There's a, I feel like it, you're going to take us on an adventure just with the tone of your voice. I don't know how to describe Good. Well, I try to bring that curiosity to it. And, the, and there are two other major influences here that we can introduce at this point. One is... My biological father, who I did not know, did not grow up with, and part of the issue was he was Jewish, and when my mother sat me down to tell me that, I was maybe 14 at the time, and I had been raised by a stepfather, 
since very early on who was African-American. So I grew up in this racially mixed family, and my, my Jewish father, I later found out I was able to meet him, and that's a whole other story. Um, turns out he had a radio show. He was, he was a writer. Uh, he was a very charismatic guy, which is how my mother came to be drawn to him. And so he had he 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 had a radio show. He was also a communist. It was the uh, West Coast uh, communist radio show back in the probably in the '30s. So there was a lot for me to digest there to come to terms with with all of this stuff. But I wasn't thinking of him at all when I started this podcast, and it wasn't until fairly recent years that I. Whoa, I'm doing I'm doing my my father. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So when you found out about it when you're a younger person, how'd you feel about it? Well, I felt horrible about it because I grew up in uh, in, in a black neighborhood, largely. We kind of very chaotic early life, and so there were times when we lived off of Sunset Strip. And uh, other times when we were in this largely uh, African-American neighborhood where ended up spending most of my uh, adolescence years. Um, so I was prepared psychologically to be black, pretty much. I remember when I was a little kid and my playmates would say, hey, man, what are you? And I'd say, I'm half white milk, half chocolate milk. And that seemed to satisfy them, and it satisfied me. So I think I think it must have been at that age that I thought that this was my biological father, although he was, he was very, very different than me. Um, so let's see, where was I going with this? Oh, so when my mother told me at about age 14, for one thing, there is uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, Jewish anti-Semitism in the black community, you know, justifiably so. They were ripped off for years by uh, uh, merchants, you know, and, and some of the time. And um, and I knew about the Holocaust, and I realized that whoa, had I been born in Germany, you know, I would have been killed in the Holocaust. I would have been sent to the ovens. And so I vowed in that moment silently, didn't say anything to my mother about it, but I just decided I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm never going to tell anybody. Why should my children that I might have someday have to carry this burden? So I'm just not going to tell anybody. Well, leap ahead many years. I'm in graduate school at the University of Michigan, just started at the University of Michigan, clinical psychology, and I'm... uh, walking in the evening with a lovely uh, young female graduate student, colleague, <clears throat> and I sh- somehow I decided to come out with her to her. I realized that somehow just intuitively, I realized, you know what? There will be a cost to carrying the secret. I grew up carrying secrets, the secret of having a black father at home when I was at a lily-white uh, fundamentalist 
school that I went to, one of many. Um, so I came out to this girl, and and she said, oh, "I knew there was something good about you. That's wonderful," you know. And she was just so welcoming that from then on, you know, I, I've not felt the need to be at all closed about it. And actually, there's so much to be proud of in, in the Jewish tradition and so on, and a whole other set of stories there. But uh, yeah. Wow. Wow. So what was your relationship like with your dad after 14? Uh, my dad was a, uh, a hod carrier. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. It's, he, would, he was a manual laborer who, in constructing a construction of stucco housing, uh, he would carry what they called the mud on his shoulder in a hod. He was an incredibly strong guy. Remember, we would go to Muscle Beach sometime. We would go to the L.A. beaches. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, you know, where Arnold Schwarzenegger, I don't think he was he was at Muscle Beach yet, but there were these other guys, you know, long-haired guys huffing and puffing as they lifted weights. And my dad liked to have them on, and he would say, oh, could I try? He come up really naively, you know. Could I, could I just try this a little bit? And and they, you know, they go. You have to go like that. And he would just go. Oh, you mean kind of like this? <laughs> just very easily. He was that strong. And I was this skinny white kid, uh, a brainy kid, a mama's boy, always sick, kind of sickly. I think a lot of the time he was just irritated. That I think he was very loving when I was when I was really young. I think I remember him tossing me up in the air and catching me and doing stuff like that. But I think as I got in more close to the teen years, there was a bit. It was a little bit more awkward. And he, from a psycho psychologist's point of view, you know, I've reflected on one of the we related through the the funny papers and. There was a paper called, um, there was a, a, a strip called Denny Dimwit. And so I was Denny Dimwit, and he was Popper. And, you know, so I accepted that but um, at the time. <laughs> but now, in retrospect, as a psychologist, what do you think about a dad who calls you Denny Dimwit? That somehow he, he, he needed me. To be that at some level, I think, because I wasn't that. But it was it was affectionate at the same time. There was this affectionate banter uh, through uh, through this kind of mechanism. Now, when I went away to to graduate school at the University of Michigan, uh, actually went to see a therapist. At one point, I was feeling very very depressed, very suicidal. And uh, so I saw, a, a, I think it was a psychiatrist, and I only saw him once or twice. <laughs> and I kept walking into his closet. There were two doors. And <laughs> this was embarrassing. I would get mixed up, you know, <laughs> which door was which. At any rate, he said one thing. Uh, you know, I was very stuck on my mother. I was just, I would... I thought everything was about my mother, in love with my mother. I had a huge 
Oedipal issues, I think. So he said, well, you talk a lot about your, your mother, but I haven't heard you say anything about your dad. I said, oh, he's not that important. And what he said, the magic key was, I doubt that. Boom. Just boom, I doubt that. That's all it took. And I started thinking about that, and then I realized that I had tremendous love for this man, that I had modeled myself after him in many ways. You know, I love reading murder mysteries. He would sit in his chair at night, and he would read Mickey Spillane and all of these paperback murder mysteries. And I realized, hey, that's, you know, I took that on in a way. And I have... This, and there are times when it's been difficult to explain that. Hey, David, why do you read this kind of stuff, you know? <clears throat> so I started to write him from the, from the university, from grad school. I wrote him some really mushy letters. And he was, uh, I think he was very touched and very moved by them. Did your stepdad know that you were his stepson when you were very young? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, no, he knew that uh, that my mother had, had this relationship with this other man, yeah. I went to the University of uh, Pennsylvania as an undergraduate. I was a full scholarship student, and because of my ham radio interest in electronics and so on, I, I got a scholarship in electrical engineering. It took just a few days of calculus, and I switched out. I switched into creative writing was what I, I, I checked out psychology. I thought psychology, surely that'll be a good fit. And no, the, the eminent lecturer was one of the big lecture halls, tiered seats going down with a lecturer way down there. And I said, this is introduction to psychology, the study of the science of behavior. And if you are under the impression that you'll find out about your own quirks or those of your friends, you're in the wrong place. And so proceeded to prove that for the rest of the semester, which was all about rat studies and so on. So I really turned off to psychology, and that's kind of how I ended up majoring, graduating with, with a degree in creative writing. Then I realized very quickly that I could starve to death <laughs> As, as the great American novelist. And I had finally taken abnormal psychology in my senior year, I think it was, senior, junior year, and I loved it. That was the psychology that was of interest. <clears throat> and so that's what motivated me to reach out to a master's program in psychology. But the only place I could get into was I had to go several steps down to... Uh, get in and accepted into a master's program. The point I was going to make was when I was an undergraduate at, at Penn, I had, you know, in my freshman year, I had assumed that I would be in a fraternity. Like all the movies, you know, the happy movies were people in fraternity. So I thought I would be in a fraternity, but I also kind of wanted to be a beatnik. And I grew a beard and... Uh, I worked at the student laundry, and one of the people who came into the student laundry, a fraternity guy, said, hey, buddy, if you want to be in a fraternity, you got to get rid of that fuzz. And I thought, you know, I was student body president of my high school. I was uh, 
on athletic teams, if they can't see past this beard, screw them. So there was that. The other thing was there were 36 fraternities on campus. Half of them were explicitly called Christian fraternities. The other half were called Jewish fraternities. So where was I supposed to go? if I was going to go. And then as I found out more about the fraternity system and so on, I was really turned off by the whole thing. And, and you know, I never did join a fraternity. But that was another place where the whole thing about Jewishness had was confusing. When you were a young person, you identified as half black, right? You thought yeah. of yourself as, as a half black yeah. person. Yeah, when I was real little. And then... When you're told at 14 that you're actually not black, right? Yeah, you're right. What did that do to you? It it was more the horror of discovering that I was something worse, that that I was something that I was not prepared to be. I didn't, I hadn't been uh, exposed yet to a to a Jewish community and and so on. Um, as I say, there was anti-Semitism in the black community. Also, my grandmother, was a, a part of the strong maternal influence that I had, my grandmother had been a, uh, <clears throat> was a divine healer who ran tent meetings around the country. And uh, uh, so a fundamentalist Christian. And... I remember I put on her glasses sometimes, like a kid will put on glasses because they're laying around and you just want to dress up and and try things out. And she said, hey, David, take those off. You look just like Robert Oppenheimer. And it's interesting how I remember that. All, after all these years, I was maybe 10 or 12. But I got the message that A, he's Jewish, B, he was communist, and somehow I, I, I had I picked up enough through through the cracks. Somehow, kids absorb stuff, and so I I sort of I knew that I knew that it was a bad thing to be Jewish, and in fact, my biological father is in the HUAC House on American Activities documents. He's named as one of the. Uh, one of the Jews, one of the Hollywood Jews. Yeah, he had a, quite a circle of uh, of of artists and and intellectuals and authors who were friends of his. And uh, he had to he moved out of the state and we got into real estate. So yeah, there was this very <laughs> very adventurous, but not a not a straight line. <laughs> yeah, you know, being labeled a communist or being a communist is a complicated thing over the decades. And at the time that he was an active radio communist, it could have meant that you're a terrorist and you actually are engaging in violent acts against It would have been perceived that way, yeah. But then there were were a lot of communists who just didn't like the imperialist, fascist American federal government uh, or... Uh, didn't like the rich preying on the poor in the United States. So there's a lot wide range of folks that would be labeled as a communist. Well, it's kind of a kind of a chic thing in certain circles and in intellectual circles at that time. 
it was uh, a badge of sorts. Like you weren't a part of the establishment. Right, right. And in fact, he at some point, he had served in the Navy. He, was, he had been a sailor. Yet to you, at 14, you're probably... Oh, my, grand, my, my grandmother's side of the family, totally anti-communist. Yeah, and really demonizing anyone who would associate with communism. And they knew that her, their daughter, their daughter, uh, had been with this, this Jewish communist man. And they knew that he was my father, biologically, but it was never discussed. They never, they never brought that up. Was that why it was kept from you? Because of his, his uh, communism, his, his story? Is that why they didn't tell you? I think they, you know, they rejected my mother for a long time. My mother didn't go see them. And I would beg, how come we're, how come we're not seeing grandmother? She's just across the town, you know, just. And uh, for years, there was no contact. And then we would go for Christmas sometimes. And uh, our stepdad, my black father, would have to wait on a street corner somewhere while we hung out at grandmother's house because she couldn't have the neighbors seeing, you know, that her daughter had married a black man, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Well, I want to get back to podcasting. What kept you going throughout the years? Because, you know, there's not a lot of money and fame in it. So what, no. <laughs> what kept you going? Uh, well, I love the doing of it. I think, you know, uh, as I said, it was very reinforcing to be able to uh, <clears throat> to uh, talk to these people, these eminent people. And I guess I've always sort of pushed against the limits to test myself, to, to kind of prove to myself, you know, that I am good enough, right? And so, particularly coming from such a weird background, you know, okay, I am acceptable in the white world, maybe. <laughs> and so another whole chapter here that we haven't touched on is I got involved in market research and I saw something about market research in your bio. That's funny, another was, parallel. Yeah, that was my first job out of, or my first real job out of college was in market research. Well, when the computer thing took off in the early 80s, I would say, I start, I was kind of, kicking myself in the head, so to speak, to say, oh, geez, this looks like it's really exciting. I should have become an engineer. I could have been right, you know, right in that place. How can I, how can I get involved in this? And I had a grad student who had been putting on a career change workshop for his master's thesis, and he, he invited me to take his his workshop and I did and it got me really into into the concept of networking and so I thought okay how can I network my way into a job that has to do with the computer industry long story short I ended up connecting to a guy who was a who a friend of mine actually worked with as a note taker who ran focus groups and so I ended up apprenticing myself to him and worked with him for about 18 years until he retired. He's six years younger than me, and he retired with a lot of money, and I helped make him a lot of that money. And I uh, got to run focus groups, and again, it was a thing of, okay, can I, 
Can I cut it in this business world? Doing focus groups for companies like Clorox and you know major brands and so on. And you were doing this while you were a professor at the same yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. And doing it a little bit under the table. I thought, okay, if they, if they discover this, you know, I'm probably not supposed to be making this money outside or not or spending these hours outside. So I had enough freedom at the time that I could kind of take an occasional trip to New York or, or Boston or someplace to run groups, San Francisco. And Tony Wolf, the guy who, uh, who was, I was apprenticing with, oh, gave me really, he was very talented, a genius guy who gave me really straight feedback. And uh, he would tell me, you know, he would critique me, and and because he'd be on the other side of the mirror as I'm r- running a discussion group, and um, you know, and he'd tell me, "You've got to be more assertive. It's your group, you're in charge. You've got, you know." So I had to develop that set of muscles, and and I'm interviewing people who are at the vice president level, say for a company, and. And so I have to have the courage to challenge them and so on and push to pull them out and so on. So that really is part of the podcasting story because a big big thread in my life, (laughs) all of these threads are there. I was very group-oriented in graduate school running encounter groups. And there was an encounter group movement which is partly how I got into the humanistic psychology thread. And I also was interested in the possibility of getting involved in uh, organization development and those kinds of groups. So in terms of the market research stuff, it was really good for me because there were times when I thought, okay, I have a PhD. Do I have to put up with, with this kind of bullshit, you know? And I would just hang in, though. Somehow I'm like a, when I latch on to something, I'm like a dog with a bone that you can swing the dog and the stick around in the air. <laughs> they don't let go. And uh, so, and I'm so glad I stuck it out because I learned, I grew in confidence, I grew in skills, and all of that somehow has, is part of the podcasting, is part of the confidence that I bring to it. I would say. Wow. That's an interesting thread. And yeah, I have a, a chapter in my life shorter than yours that was doing focus groups. A part of my market research position was leading focus groups. Okay. And, uh, I, and I, I remember them very vividly because it was such a, an interesting time in the early 90s in Seattle. There were a lot of tech companies, and so I right. I did a focus group for an early version of a VR glasses, uh-huh. and uh, you know this is '93 or something, and I'm thinking, oh my god, VR glasses are just around the corner. Little did I know it would take another 20 years or something before yeah, they, be- yeah. they became even somewhat uh, commercially viable. Um, I also did a focus group for the internet uh, for ESPN.com, and. I had never seen the internet before. And as a focus group leader, I was expected to run this focus group for customers of ESPN.com. And I did a crash course in like five minutes just before all the people came 
of yeah, like, right. okay, how does the internet work? Because <laughs> I'd heard about it, but and yeah. and I instantly just was like, oh my god, this is the best thing I've ever seen. You know, just information and hyperlinks and anyway. This was the exciting thing too about about doing that kind, of, being a market research consultant, was you had to be a fast study. And like you say, maybe five minutes before you go in and you kind of, <laughs> you've had some orientation. And, uh, and, it, and of course, you learn through doing the research, you learn. Now, where this, where this ties in for me in terms of, of leading focus groups is, uh, 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 yeah, ties in with the leading of focus groups is there was something called a discussion guide. Did you have a discussion guide? It's sort of an outline of that you can show the client. Okay, you know, here's a, what my understanding of what you want to draw out of this experience, and it was a written document. And so, I contacted you recently to ask, do you have a, a do you use a discussion guide? <laughs> and and it doesn't sound like you do, but I do. I re I rely on that. That became just part of my uh, modus operandi and. Uh, moved it right into the focus groups. That's funny. Yeah. I don't remember anything like that. And I guess that informs the way I podcast, which is I always <laughs> wing it. <laughs> I, I just follow my nose because I find that even when we do have a discussion guide, it, it, it gets thrown out the window as soon as we start talking. Yes. Um, uh, you said something interesting earlier. You said, oh, am I acceptable now to white people? What did you mean by that? Well, this has to be in the background uh, you know, at a, at a, at a, you know, I'm speaking as a therapist who's therapizing myself, who's developing insights about myself over the years, particularly at this late, later stage of life where I'm looking back a lot and things are, I'm kind of seeing the puzzle pieces come together. So I would say that was a, a, uh, there was a drive there to, to want to be acceptable in to a larger society and in this white society that we live in and and also in the Jewish society. I'm married to a woman who's, who's, who's very Jewish, who's a Jewish expert in the area. And, uh, and I had, I was engaged to a couple of, girls who were born in Germany and I you know and I went to Germany and I'm sitting with uh, I've had a father-in-law and a almost father-in-law who served in the German military and you know so, so uh, that can't be accidental <laughs> yeah what what is it that you think you're trying to work out I think that I'm working out uh, peace in our time. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm working on trying to gain acceptance, and and uh, I had an early first marriage with a young woman from the Philadelphia mainline, and her father was a titan of uh, of industry. A vice president of Pet Milk and president of Whitman's Candies. And um, there's a whole other story here, but uh, I was not able to win his favor. We got caught out sexually involved, and uh, 
uh, I got kicked out of his house and so on. You got caught having sex with your wife? We were not married at the time. <laughs> so is it that you're therapizing yourself and seeing that you've been trying to gain acceptance, you've been trying to win people over that might have historically, traditionally hated you and, and your kind? Uh, yeah. did, you, did you succeed? Well, I th- I th- yeah, I, I, I have succeeded, I think. And, uh, you know, and I think it's part of my nature, biologically, I believe, but also as part of all of this history that I've been sharing with you, is I'm a people pleaser. And so on my, in my interviews, I, I'm not, you know, there are podcasters out there who are very challenging, you know, and they, and, that's not me, and I'm and I accept that about myself. Um, you know, I've learned from the focus group experiences to maybe question a little bit gently, but but not really in a in a way that's going to feel assaultive. Well, that's really interesting because I am very familiar with your interviewing style, and I wouldn't call it people pleasing. I would call it deferential and and supporting the interviewee, uh, helping them to tell their story and their expertise uh, in a way that I'm not very good at because I can't help but to insert myself. Um, But when you say people-pleasing, that could mean that you're just naturally pleasant and people-pleasing, or are you suppressing other kinds of things? I I, I think it's really deep in my nature. You know, I was raised to be uh, a good Christian boy, going to Christian schools. So I really internalized all of those, um, the, the positive attributes of trying to be a, a good person, of, of uh, the golden rule. Of, so I think all of that was deeply internalized and it's just part of who I am. And part of my own, you know, I can be overly self-critical sometimes and put it in, it feels like I put it in and I positioned it wrong (laughs) in talking about it, you know, saying I'm a people pleaser. But it's more of what you said of trying to uh, uh, focus on that person's strengths and bring them out. And, uh, And I've always been like that. Yeah, you don't insert yourself or if you do, you'll say something self-deprecating. You'll say, I have no idea. Uh, you're a very smart person, and I'm kind of confused by what you're saying. Can you tell me more about it? Or <laughs> you know, like, you don't have any pride around trying to seem smart or better or superior or anything. You're, you're quite accomplished and very smart, and yet when you're interviewing, you come across like a curious person who is absorbing knowledge, but you have absorbed so much knowledge even before you became podcaster. And of course, being an interviewer, you've learned so much, but you never come across like, like a know-it-all or anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. (laughs) You know, you had asked me to talk about, I don't know if we have time, but to talk about some of the, uh, some of my favorite interviews. Yes, please. And And people would often ask me for that. So many of them seem so good that I would just say, well, I, you know, I, I can't do that. And I, plus, I didn't want to hurt the feelings of somebody that I wasn't mentioning, maybe, who I should have mentioned. One that I put on that list 
is the CEO of transpersonal of uh, transcendental meditation. Trans. What am I trying to? Th- yeah, it's TM transcendental meditation, right? So he is the direct inheritor from Maharishi, who the Beatles got turned on to meditation by. So I interviewed him just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, about a book that he had written on um, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, is what his book is about. This is a guy who has an MD in neuropsych and has a PhD in other kinds of psychology, has interviewed everybody that's anybody in neuroscience or religion, or or enlightenment, and so on. What made it a favorite for you? A, I'm so impressed by who he is, and that I got to interview him. And they, actually, they approached me. His organization approached me and solicited an interview with me, which was great. And the fact that that we had such a good one-to-one contact that felt very real, very in the moment, and that I wasn't just totally intimidated. You know, that just, that felt really good. And I felt like, I felt that he felt positively about the interview and uh, and I felt positively. And so I see it as a feather in my cap and it's one of the ones that I put there. Do you feel intimidated by some of your guests? Well, potentially, yeah. I, I Sometimes I've, I'm, I'm nervous beforehand, you know, just like I would get nervous sometimes before focus groups. Uh and, and be kind of intimidated by, you know, but once I'm in it, once I get into the process, uh, then it's, it's okay. Because it doesn't come across that you're intimidated while you're interviewing people. Yeah, no, somehow I get past it. Another one that I'll share one more on, it's hard not to share them all. Brett Carr is a British psychoanalyst who I've interviewed a number of times, and he seems to be a big fan. And so I'm just, it's wonderful that the, the guy of his stature who's who's studied Freud and written all these books about Freud and 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 been been uh, had his own psychology show years ago on the BBC and he's just such a big fan so I put down my interview with him uh, another one I want to share here shrink rap radio number 833 neuroscientist Joe Ledoux, PhD on putting the me putting the mental back into mental health and more. Now, this is a guy who is so accomplished in psychology. Um, incredible guy. So so those are some of my favorites. And anybody who's interested, when you go to the website, Shrinkwrap Radio, you can look for, uh, there's a favorites link. Matt, when you say Shrinkwrap Radio, when you say that phrase, and then when you said earlier shrinkwrap radio episode number da 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 it's like hearing ed mcmahon say here's johnny it's like (laughs) (laughs) wonderful (laughs) because i've been talking to you you know back and forth but then when i hear that phrase it's just like it transports me into listening on my headphones to your podcast for almost 20 years it was weird it was like wait i'm actually talking to actually dr dave right now (laughs) yeah yeah. it's weird how it just uh, that those neurons that remember all the times that I've heard you say that phrase, you know? That's one of the great things about podcasting, that I'm not the first one to point this out, that when you listen to those earphones, that's right, 
right next to your brain. It's like going really deep into the brain. Yeah. And, well, uh, you're deep in my brain, Dr. Dave. You, you, yeah. and, and that phrase is a, is a part of it. We talked off the air a while back. You had talked about how you were thinking about the next chapter for the podcast and, and your career and how you're getting older and things aren't necessarily working like they used to. And where do you want to go with the podcast into the future? I'm curious. And two, what do you want your legacy to be in 50 years if uh, there's a, a a chapter in a book about the history of podcasting and psychology? You should be mentioned. I would hope you're mentioned. I want you to write that book. <laughs> I'm charging you with writing that book, <laughs> building my 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 legacy. So in that uh, paragraph yeah. on you, what do you, what yeah. do, how do they want them to d- describe you? You know, I w- did go through a period of thinking. Maybe this has monetary value. I, n- I never really got into it. Uh, t- t- I never thought about money when I when I started. And then in the evolution of of the of podcasting, going to conferences and so on, people were talking about monetization, and this became the big thing: monetization. How are you going to monetize? You know. So then I started to obsess about that a little bit and make my own efforts towards monetization, but not in a big way and not in a, in a very successful way. So then more recently, uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Shrinkwrap Radio has some monetary value. Maybe I could monetize it. Maybe there's somebody who would want to buy it, somebody who's starting out in podcasting, and they could buy this ready-made, high-reputation thing. Uh, but then COVID happened, and I realized somewhere along there in COVID that, hey, this is really important to me. This is nurturing me. I'm getting so much out of this. I can't imagine not having this, not having these contacts. These are, these are about the, you know, I've got a couple of regular Zooms with a couple of small groups of friends, and other than those, this is it in terms of my contact with a profession and just my contact person to person with other people. And so, no, I'm not going to sell it. Uh, got no interest in selling it. It's too important to me. Um, so there's that. I'm sure your audience is happy to hear that because yeah. if someone bought it, it just wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah. So then I started to think about, well, Now, when I was thinking about selling it, the person who raised their hand was Isabella Clark, the the London person that I mentioned who's been helping me with blogs and so on. And she doesn't have any money. And she, she said, I would like to buy it, but I don't have any money. Okay, well, so I've kind of, I kind of think it, it, she might be the inheritor, but I've mentioned it to to my son Jonathan, who is a uh, nurse practitioner, and he's also trained in psychedelic psychedelic assisted psychotherapy as one of the things that he does. And but he's totally busy, and he's not into technology. <laughs> but he wants he doesn't want to see it go away. And he would ideally, in the best of all possible worlds, when he retires, he would like me to show him how to do it. So, okay, I'm going to include him in any way that I can, if, as he was interested. Uh, there is a very uh, worshipful worshipful fan 
who is as important to me as I am to him in Tehran, who is a therapist. Uh, he's a psychoanalytically trained psychotherapist. <clears throat> and I'm trying to talk him out of getting out of into getting out of Iran because it's such a dangerous place. But at any rate, so I thought, well, maybe maybe there's some way to give it to him or have Issy get him involved. So he's also very busy, a lot of balls in the air, can't take it on right now. But he and Issy have uh, spoken. So is your hope that is your hope that someone who cares about the podcast, who you trust, that you know well, will carry the torch? Is that what you're hoping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's looking like it's going to be Isabella Clark. Um, you know, and so the other thing, of course, is that some time back, one of my guests, uh, Tony, Tony, I can't quite pull his name up, uh, had who's uh, I interviewed on deliberate practice in psychotherapy, which is a, an important movement for the training of psychotherapists. <clears throat> he said, you know what? This, these interviews are so important, they've got to be saved somewhere. Uh, people might, 100 years from now, they might say, they might wonder, well, how were therapists thinking? What were they talking about back in the, in the 90s or in the 2000s? And so I approached Sonoma State University saying, can I give this to you? Can, you know, and they said, no, no, uh, we can't take it on. And um, generally people get have an endowment. You have to have money to, uh, to host and preserve this kind of thing. But she said, you might look into something called the Internet Archive. So it turns out there's the Internet Archive, which is a, a free, although they're they are asking for donations, serviced by a guy who made a lot of money in tech. And he started this along with some other things. Maybe you've heard of the Wayback Machine. This is the guy who started the Wayback Machine for uh, your website has died uh, uh, or some website that you loved back in the day has gone away. And you'd like to, for one reason or another, you'd like to go back and, and you can get a, a get a, 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 a shot of it. And uh, so he's got something that's kind of like a Wikipedia. It's a, a free service where they will store content. So I've put all of my podcasts are on there. I've uploaded them all there. So and unless these guys go out of business, they'll be there forever. It's a total crime that you have to consider asking someone to please retain all of these interviews because this is a treasure not only because it's you're the first and best psychology podcast but um the depth of the interviews the knowledge the personalities you know a lot of these figures you read in articles and books and you hear about but you don't get to know them you don't get to hear their voices right. and yeah. Also, the things that they get into are off script. They start uh, not only in their personal lives, but also just other background academic and research and theoretical ideas, you know, little ideas that inspired them. I'm sure that there are listeners to your podcast who 
would like to help somehow, uh, you know, whether it's a GoFundMe or someone that steps forward or I step forward. But if, if you're left and no one can actually uh, do what you want to, you know, what, whatever your wishes would be for the future of your podcast, I'm guessing there's, a, there's dozens of people that would be willing to volunteer their time for that. Well, I'm not aware of them, and I would look forward to brainstorming with you more uh, about that. So it, getting back to that paragraph written about you in 50 years, what do you want it to say about you? <clears throat> Just all the good stuff that you that you said here. <laughs> yeah. Well, what did you always wish? You know, what was what gets you up in the morning? You know, like what's the the purpose that you are trying to enact? Well, ideally, I'm looking to do, to uh, continue to to have good meetings with people. On a, that's become more and more important to me as I enter into my intellectual decline due to age and 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 uh, illness and so on is to uh, not worry so much about the content, uh, but on the quality of the interaction and on the rapport and to continue to develop that in the service of bringing their work forward. And so that's what I get off on. And uh, uh, now I know, I know that you've, one of your, uh, one of the ways that you've built your success is by uh, using Patreon and, uh, offering a lot of bonus and extra content, you know, and, and you really deliver. I don't have the energy to do that at this point. I don't know if I ever did, but <clears throat> so I, I don't have the energy to create additional interviews or uh, other kinds of of mode of incentives. So, so, so that's not going to be part of the picture for me. But I will just keep doing it as long as I can do it for. Because it's, it's my mission to propagate psychology, to propagate a, a broad view of psychology, a soulful view of psychology. I mean, a, a humanistic view at the deepest level. And for, for a long time, I was reluctant to use words like soul. But, um, you know, and for a long time, I, I rejected uh, the early religious training, indoctrination, uh, now kind of come more full circle. You know, for one thing, the, the, there have been so many synchronicities in my own life that it's felt like it was guided or something was happening at an intuitive level. So the most I can say about that is I can't say anything about God or, or a, a higher intelligence, although I'm verging in the, the direction of a higher intelligence. I don't know. I, it seems like there are patterns in the universe, in, in, in consciousness. One of the things that, that, that I really got in my interview with Dr. Tony Nader, the Transcendental Meditation leader, is the thing that makes his, his uh, universe that he's proposing, what makes it work, is that the fundamental unit is consciousness. So in other words, he doesn't have to... Uh, well, you have to you have to assume something, right? And the building block assumption for him is consciousness, and I think I can be on board with that. So, I'm trying to serve consciousness and human aid. You know, my grandmother 
published a newspaper called Healing Hope. I realized that was another one of my realizations after many years was, oh my God, I'm doing Healing Hope here. Even though I'm not preaching, I'm not putting out a specific message, but I feel like behind the message, behind what I'm doing, something's coming through. What do you hope is coming? I mean, I could tell you what I think is coming through, but what, what do you hope is coming through? I think, I think what you've said, I think the feedback that you've given me is what I'm talking about, that that's the something that's coming through. That's, that's the, uh, the, the extra sauce, the special sauce. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, that without you, it won't have. It'll be a different special sauce, hopefully, but without you, yeah. it won't have that. Yeah, if I were to put it into words, I would say warmth, curiosity, a deep humility, you know, being very humble, unassuming, comforting, <laughs> pleasant, building other people up, positive, but also deep, you know, not shallow. There's a deepness, there's a an openness to vulnerability, a valuing of of the other person, recognition of connection. And also a perseverance, I guess, as well. There's a perseverance to you. Uh, yeah. You just keep going. And yeah, every yes. episode starts the same, and and there's a format, and and it just feels good to just have that in your RSS feed every, every week. Thank you. And I would say that you're doing the same thing. So you're already the... <laughs> You're already the extension of Shrink Wrap Radio, if I may be so bold. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no way that that's possible, but I, I'll take the, the honor. Like I said at the beginning, it's just a huge honor to, to talk with you. I have a lot more questions, but we're uh, at the end of our time. And thanks for coming on my podcast, Dr. Dave. Hopefully, this won't be the last time. You know, we'll, we'll talk again. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. And everyone, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. This is the place where I typically look back on the interview I've conducted and share some of my observations about it. However, today is a bit different inasmuch as I was the person being interviewed. So first of all, I'm a little embarrassed by all the praise Kirk heaped on me. At the same time, I need to take it to heart with gratitude that he sees me in such a favorable light. It makes me feel seen and that all my work over the years has not been for naught. I have to congratulate Kurt for giving me space to go into so many of the details of my life. He was very skillful in drawing me out and making me feel safe to be so self-disclosing. I haven't listened back, and I'm a little apprehensive that I may feel overexposed if I do. However, if I do, I can't blame that on Kirk, because I know that I really felt it was important for me to share that much of my story so that you, my listeners, get a sense of the many influences that have found expression in Shrinkwrap Radio. I would definitely love to get feedback from you listeners about your take on this interview. I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Kirk on the next episode, and I hope I serve him as well as he has me. 
I'm truly impressed by his work, and I'm sure that will come through. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Hackett and I'm an accredited psychotherapist based in Dublin, Ireland. I'm delighted to mention that I've just become a jumbo contributor to Shrinkwrap Radio. Having really enjoyed the show for over a year now, I've found that Dr. Dave's interviews and his gentle reflections at the end of each has often left me feeling a renewed sense of passion and enthusiasm in my work, a sense of excitement in being part of a wider community of therapists and mental health professionals and personally enriched by virtue of the themes and ideas presented in the show pertinent to my own development as both a person and a practitioner. I hope my small monthly contribution demonstrates my gratitude to Dr. Dave for his commitment to forging connections in and amongst us all. Should you wish to express your gratitude, I would encourage you to visit the Shrinkwrap Radio website and click the support button to keep Shrinkwrap Radio in our lives for many years to come. Thank you, Mike Hackett, a therapist there in Dublin, Ireland, one of my favorite places. I'm glad that you have found support both professionally and personally in these interviews, and I appreciate your financial contributions and your encouragement of others to do likewise. So once again, it's time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to Dr. Kirk Honda for reaching out to interview me and doing such a good job of it. Next week, I'll be interviewing him about his own podcasting career. His podcast, Psychology in Seattle, as of 2023, the podcast and YouTube channel have grown to include over 3,000 episodes, 330,000 YouTube subscribers, and several paying members on Patreon and YouTube. In my interview with him, I hope to discover the secret sauce for such stellar success. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.